0: You are listening to Pastor Michael Harvey of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See, recorded on Sunday, July twenty fourth, 2016, based on the book of Psalms, chapter 73. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. This morning we will have our second seri- uh, second sermon in the Psalms. Um, we finished up our God's Healthy Church series. There were some things that popped up in that God's Healthy Church series that exposed my heart. I don't know how many of you heard this, but it, in almost every sermon that Pastor Mike preached related to God's Healthy Church, he had something to say about whiners and complainers. How many of you heard it? And I realized that I struggle... With envy, and that's often the source of my whining and complaining. I look around at what other people have, and I get envious and jealous. And so I I began to pray and think, Lord, I I know that, that I'm not the only one that struggles with this, but lo and behold, there is a psalm in the scriptures, and I am Asaph. Asaph is the character of Psalm 73 and we're going to look at Asaph and his struggle in just a few minutes. But the first thing I want to do is introduce you to a person by the name of Holly. She is a fictitious person. Holly was bright, was a bright and pretty child, but she had a peculiar habit. She always wanted everybody else's toys. Uh, those of you who may work in the daycare center back there, you may have a little child, a little cherub, who runs around stealing everybody's toys. I I was one of those children. Um, In elementary school, I had a friend of mine who, in the midst of uh, other kindergartners building homes and little houses with the the blocks of cardboard, the cardboard blocks that looked like bricks, I, arm in arm with my fellow destructor, would walk through them and steal them because I didn't want anybody to have fun. I was uh, just like that. Well, Holly cried when her best friend got a doll for for her birthday and Holly didn't have the same doll. A few years later, Holly whined when the neighbor girl appeared at church in a matching Laura Ashley outfit. And she began to yell at her mother, I should be the only one that has that dress. She pouted when her sister was taken to Disney World as a reward for straight A's through high school. Well, when Holly became a teenager, she turned her attention toward boys. She quickly mastered the use of makeup and lightened her hair dramatically and learned to dress provocatively. And her competitive drive always drew her toward her friends' boyfriends. Do you know anybody like that? Do you have friends that may be like that? Always trying to worm their way in between your relationships with other guys or other girls? She made it her habit to call them, to ask them their advice for things, to sow seeds of criticism about the girls or the guys in their lives. As a college student, Holly met Jack and Tammy. Jack and Tammy were a couple that, in, in their 30s, involved in leadership of a campus ministry where Holly was attending college. At first, Holly innocently joined the students at Jack and Tammy's house, and they gathered as a group, and they participated in Bible studies, they attended campus events, and they just hung out. But before long, Holly was spending more and more time with Jack alone. Like any married couple, Jack and Tammy had their small differences, but Holly instinctively knew how to hone in on those differences and separate and divide even more. She would criticize Tammy's housekeeping or her same old hairstyle or her quick temper. Well Holly's divisive arts were astonishing, as were her manipulative capabilities, and she called the home one afternoon in tears one regarding being kicked out of school. She was kicked out of college, and she really made that story up. But she was trying to elicit an emotional response from Jack, and she got it. She also knew that Tammy would be busy making dinner, and so she couldn't come. But Jack jumped in the car and ended up picking her up. Well, not long after that, uh, within a year, Jack and Tammy had filed for divorce. Jack was kicked out of the campus ministry, and Holly and Jack moved in together. The tragedy didn't end with the breakup of Jack and Tammy's marriage, though. Holly eventually became disillusioned with Jack. She complains that he's too old. She complains that, why isn't he younger, humiliates him with jokes about his weight, about his thinning hair, his middle-class attitudes. Holly wants a bigger house. She wants a house at the beach. She wants a new car just like the Joneses. By the way, why did the Joneses always get a bad rap? (laughs) Let's call the Millers. Let's say the Millers today. Why doesn't she have a new car like the Millers? Holly constantly fought, and Jack constantly fought bitterly over her insatiable desires for more things, better things, things others have that she'll never get because Jack is such a boring old man with a crappy job. Well, I hope your struggle with envy is not that extreme, but I'm sure you struggle with it. Sisters, did you have a sister who got pregnant very quickly and you struggled? And envy and jealousy began to perk its way up in your life because she's getting all the the gifts for the kid and the showers and I'm stuck. Maybe Maybe you're the older sister and you're struggling to find that perfect guy and your younger siblings have gotten married rather quickly and you're wondering, what's wrong with me? Why can't I have what they have? Or maybe it's your neighbor who who gets a car every two or three years. And you wonder, yeah, I know, I know those lease programs are a rip-off, but I just want a new car every couple years. Or maybe you think that new gadget is going to satisfy you this time around. I think envy is defined as feeling of discontentment and resentment aroused by another's desirable possessions or qualities often accompanied by a strong desire to have them and to do whatever it takes to get them. I think there are two elements to envy. The first element, it includes desire. Is there anything wrong with desire, first of all? I don't think there is. I think God has given us desire. In fact, if you look around and you see other brothers and sisters in Christ who have a, a a maturity in their faith and, and, and you desire to grow in godliness like them, I think that's a good kind of desire, isn't it? Desire to want to imitate others who are imitating Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that's a good desire. The problem is when that desire is accompanied with resentment that's, that it's going well for the other person and not for you. Where, where it's a desire that's accompanied with resentment and jealousy and whining and complaining spirit. If envy is allowed to, to become dominant in our lives, it will warp our perspective and lead us into destructive behaviors just like Holly. Is there a remedy for envy? Thank goodness there is a remedy for envy. So turn with me to Psalm, psalm 73. It is a psalm of Asaph. It's not a psalm of David. Asaph was, uh, of the Levit- was a member of the Levitical class that was assigned particularly to lead worship in Israel. So it could be easily said that Asaph was probably a campus pastor. And yes, pastors struggle with envy. I, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons I am not wealthy, and, and trust me, Elizabeth and I, my wife and I talk about this often, God has been so good to us and for me, I struggle because he's not been good to us in ways that I wanted to be good to us in, in all the temporal stuff. But I don't have a whole lot of wealth, and I think God knows my heart because if I, think I, ha- if I had a whole lot of wealth, I'm not sure I'd be serving him. I really am not sure. So elders, next time you figure out budgets for your campus pastors, make sure you talk to them about their envy and jealousy. Here's the image that I want to put in your mind. I I want to put this image in your mind that there are some believers that have gathered together and they're struggling through life. And as this psalmist begins to tell his story in Psalm 73, this is how he starts. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here's your first, here's your first map point. When God is not enough, we lose perspective. When God is not enough, we lose perspective. And, and, and let me qualify that. When God is not enough, he's not the one with the problem. We're the one with the problem. When God is not big enough in our life, it's not because he has somehow diminished, it's we have diminished him. We have reduced him to something that he is not. You know these two little balls of fluid in my head and your head that we call eyeballs. They're they're really somewhat uh, amazing creations. I, I might we might debate about this, but I think that sight is probably one of the most important senses that we have. I, I would really la- I'd rather lose the sense of touch. I'd rather lose the sense of hearing than lose my sense of sight. Um. I, I don't want to lose my sense of taste, as you all can see, but I think that sight is really a rather amazing thing. You know, the process of sight is kind of amazing, too. How many of you, as you're looking at me, are actively concentrating on focusing your eyeballs? You're not. It just happens. How many of you, as you look around the room... You recognize shades and colors. You're not thinking about that process, are you? It just happens. Light waves come into our, uh, into our eyes and chemical impulses take place and, and the brain does thousands of calculations to, to give us a, s- a sense of depth perception and we don't have to think about it. It just happens. Our eyeballs are really amazing creations. But as powerful as our eyeballs are, they have one significant limitation they limit us to only seeing physical things and physical things can trip us up can trip us up when envy is part of the picture we live in an age of upgrades don't we how many of you have the latest cell phone be honest i'm not going to call you out And how many of you in a few days when they start dripping the new upgrades to those cell phones will start to think, wow, I got gypped. Now I have to wait two years to get the new phone because I have this contract with Verizon. I want the new phone now. And so some of us will even take that new phone under contract and we'll return it and be willing to pay the extra $600 so we can just get the new stuff. We do that, don't we? I I was amazed when we first bought our, our, we bought an HD television many years ago. We bought it on Black Friday and so didn't spend a whole lot of money on it, but it was 1080p. Does anybody know what 1080p stands for? 1,080 pixels per inch. Guess what? There's 4,000K now or 4K now. There's 4,000 pixels per inch now. And so not only will you be able to see the hair follicles of the person on the screen, you might even be able to see into their pores. <laughs> but you know, that, that, that stirs in us this discontentment. this The stuff that I have isn't good enough. The gifts that God has given me. And remember, what was the first phrase that the psalmist said? God is good to those who trust him. But we doubt His goodness. We lose perspective when we get tripped up with things that our eyes see. And again, it's not our eyes' problem. It's, it's our hearts. The eyes are the windows to our soul. What your eyes are beholding is going to be what your soul fixes itself on. And if you're beholding things and stuff, and if those things attract you and wow you, it's not going to be long before you're doubting God's goodness towards you. Advertisers are masters at getting you to think that someone's holding out on you. And spiritually, we start to think God is holding out on us. Asaph took those little eyeballs of his and he focused them on the proud and wicked around him. And what he saw made him envious. Why was he envious? Let's take a look at the next few verses. And again, here... The lack of perspective that Asaph has, for they have no pangs until death. Really, he's saying they never struggle. Their bodies are fat and sleek; they're not malnourished. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's saying these people are healthy. If they get sick, they have access to the best medical care. They can afford all the painkillers. They're well fed. They shop at the best supermarkets. They eat at the best restaurants. They can afford the best security systems to protect them from the trouble that the rest of us have to deal with. These people have it made. But he goes on it's not just their their physical comforts that they have, they are emotionally secure. Look what the next few verses say. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. What are they saying when they set their mouths against heaven? There's no God. You're the master of your own fate. You control your destiny. Don't trust him, trust yourself. And the thing that's worse, Asaph recognizes, and their tongue struts through the earth, and, and, and I think deep down inside Asaph, he's saying, Lord, why are you not responding? Why don't you sweep these people away? I, I'm really glad that I am, I am not God. And, and some of you, I, I'm sure, are glad you're not God too, especially when you're in the car on a busy highway. And I love that, 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 that scene in Bruce Almighty where he gets God's powers for a couple days, right? And he's looking for a parking spot and there's a traffic jam in front, his, in front of his business, in front of his office, and what does he do? He's sitting in his car and he goes, whoop, and the cars whoop, crush up against the buildings and he just drives without any problems, parks in his spot. That would be me. Watch out, friends, if you're driving in front of me and you don't recognize that the gas pedal's on the right, I'm going to zap you with a bolt of lightning. Get out of my way. I get so impatient with people, and so I'm glad I'm not God because I would wipe people out. I'm glad he's patient with us and long-suffering. But that's what Asaph wants. Lord, These people rage against you and you appear to do nothing. He goes on, therefore his people turn back to them. His people, God's people, turn back to the world. And and don't we have that tendency? We get caught up in the celebrity culture, don't we? We want to be like the American royalty, the athletes, the movie stars. Can somebody tell me? And I don't watch it very much, but America's Got Talent. How many of you have seen that? Can somebody tell me where supermodel Heidi Klum gets the ability to judge talent? Or, or when there's a catastrophe around the world, who do they call? Angelina Jolie. Does she have the answers? Or, or Sean Penn? But but we strive after that, don't we? we? We want to be like the rich and famous. And we get tripped up. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Talk about confident. These people have more friends on Facebook and followers on Twitter than you would ever desire. And they take great pride in it. I remember when that was all the rage, and maybe it still is in some sectors of our culture, to see who had the most friends or followers on Facebook and Twitter. I am trying to figure out how to get rid of my Facebook account. And and here's here, here's the shame of it. I, I want to get rid of my Facebook account because of some things I see church people saying. Worldly wisdom. And, and and we as Christians ought to be posting godly wisdom on Facebook and Twitter. I'm not sure how I can do it because I've got several other accounts connected to that Facebook account. So I'm, if I unfriend you, it's not because I don't like you. Here's his conclusion in verse 12 of what the wicked are like. Again, we see that when God is not enough, we lose perspective. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He recognizes with his, with his eyes, but he's in conflict deep down inside because he recognizes things aren't the way they, he thinks they ought to be. He, he, he's ready to throw the flag and blow the whistle and, and, and cry moral foul, unnecessary wickedness. Eternity in the penalty box. Instead, he sees them winning the game of life. And we all feel that way, don't we? When the politician who, who steals from the coffers gets immunity. When, when the general who, who is in charge of massacring innocent people in a village gets off scot-free. When, when, when the gossip down the street... Uh, gets better things than we do. When, 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 kids, when kids who are disrespectful and dishonorable to their parents still get all the latest gadgets, something reaches up inside of us and says, this isn't right. And so we want to be judge and jury. But it leads them to a crisis of faith. Doubt. Envy, jealousy, it will lead you to a crisis of faith. It will lead you to take your eyes off your Savior, your eyes off the goodness of God, and to look for answers all around you. But notice this notice, here's a second point on your map. When God is not enough, we think He owes us something. When God is not enough, we think he owes us something. Look at what Asaph continues to say in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. See, Asaph actually questioned his approach to life and is beginning to regret the fact that he's been committed to a life of service to God. How many of you young people have committed to a life of celibacy before you find the man or the woman that God has brought you to? I, I know people who have committed to a life of celibacy until God brings them the man or woman. And, and when, it, when, that, when that time stretches further and further on and they start to wonder, Lord, where is this guy or this girl? Is it really, is it really that important for me to save myself? Why don't I just get it over with? because all my friends seem to be sleeping with everybody and they've got all the guys and the girls what good is it for me to keep myself pure and faithful what good is it for you in your business to to not hide funds to do things according to the law when you see the guy in the next cubicle stealing from the company and not getting caught All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands. Behold the power of what your physical eyes see. Behold the power of envy. Understand that these two little balls of goo stuck in your head are actually capable of causing you to doubt your faith and to think that God owes you something. Lord, I put 10% in that offering plate this morning. You need to show up now. Fill my bank account, Lord. Give me that better car. That bigger house. God, I sacrifice for you and try to live obedient to your commands and still don't get the girl, the promotion, the raise. And that really is the health and wealth gospel, isn't it? If you have enough faith, then God is now obligated to move on your behalf. And we get stuck in that, we get stuck in that rat race because we take our eyes off God's goodness in our life. I think you'd be surprised what holds Asaph back from tripping up on the banana peel. Verse 15 and 16, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus. And what's he saying? If I had opened my mouth, if, I, if, I would, if I'd be willing to start telling people of my struggles and my complaints, what he's afraid of, he says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, that I would be a, that I would be a point of distraction for even other followers. So what restrains him? He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. See, this man's a part of community, and your struggle and my struggle with envy is not something we individually deal with. It affects other people it affects other brothers and sisters in Christ because it, it, it may lead to gossip. It may lead to complaining. And complaining has a way of rippling through a community, doesn't it? He knows that if, Asaph knows that if he gets to the point where he's actually articulating his doubts in a convincing way, he'll distract other followers. And that's what holds him back. The gathering of God's people, Christian community, is part of a solution to pursuing righteousness. But let's not even, let's not make Christian community, let's not elevate Christian community to the status of God, though. We need each other, don't we? We need the body of Christ. And look where Asaph's need for the body of Christ led him. He's torn up inside, but what he sees is his eyes. Then as if he can find no other relief, he runs to the sanctuary, and the rest of reality explodes into, his, into into view. He says that in verse seventeen. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Things came into focus when I went into worship. And, and we could talk a lot about worship in this context. We could have a series of messages on worship and the importance of worship, the value of worship, the motivation for worship. But one of my struggles, even in our contemporary culture with worship, is the difference between coming to church so I can get my fix or coming to church so I can get more of God. Because really, honestly, if you're coming to worship in the mornings to get that feel-good feeling, to get pumped up, as if you're in a, in, a, in a huddle to go out there and get on the front line, I, I think that that's still focusing on your strength and your abilities. But if you come to church to get more of God, if, if the worship team and the songs that are chosen give us a better image of who God is and a better vision of who God is, that's where, the, that's where your emotions ought to come from. Worship ought to elicit emotion, shouldn't it? But not because of the technical skill of the, of the worship team. Not because of the wonderful drum riffs that Zach can play that beat in my heart. But because of how those things point us to God, to see him for who he is, to elevate his character, to elevate his grace and mercy in our life. That's the point of worship. If you leave here on Sunday morning having seen God for who he is and are changed and transformed, that's going to change your motivation. That's going to change your perspective on the people and the struggles and the envy that you deal with every day. See, standing in the courts of the temple, Asaph gained a new perspective on what his eyes were telling him. It had been hidden from him before, but now he could see what he was missing. He could see that in the end, the mafia boss or the crooked politician get their just desserts. He could see that in the end, that if you operate your businesses according to the law and not try to hide money in your taxes, that you'll be better off for it. He could see that in the final analysis, God was in control of even the prosperous condition of the wicked. See, God sits on his throne, doesn't he? God is not asleep at the switch. God is not unaware of what's going on in our culture. And we wring our hands sometimes, don't we? we, we every four years, we go through a political cycle and, and we see even Christians believing that the man or woman who's going to be in that office is going to be the Savior. Is going to fix it all. It's going to right all the wrongs. Going to feed all the hungry. Going to clothe all the naked. The answer is not in our political system. The answer is in a God who sits on the throne, who's in control and who's in charge. But make no mistake about it: God doesn't sit there idly. He expects you and I to get involved. There's a contemporary Christian song where the, the, the writer says, I, I, "I raised my fist toward heaven and said, "God, why don't you do something about this?" And their refrain is, "I did. I created you." God created us to get involved in those things. Let's not let's not use our Christianity as a way of sticking our head in the sands to avoid the difficulties and struggles of this world. Let's see our faith as that lens that gives us a proper perspective on the world that we live in with the proper answers and solutions for where the wor- that, that the world struggles with. What did he understand? Look at verses 18 to 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What, was the, what is the end of the wicked? What is the end of the ungodly? Are they fat, are they fat dumb, and happy? Are they, do they never struggle? Do their kids never get sick? Do they have the best medical care? No, they really don't. Because really, all that stuff is gone when they pass from this life to the next. It's the same lot for us, isn't it? All the stuff that we accumulate is gone. But if our hope is in Jesus Christ, we know that's our salvation, not the things we surround ourselves with. Point number three in our map is when God is enough, we gain a new perspective on our own rebellion and sin as well as evil around us. When God is enough, we gain a new perspective on our own rebellion and sin. Asaph recognized that he was shameful and humble and broken and he almost accepted what his physical eyes saw. Verse 21 through 24 says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. God brought him to his senses. God God helped him to recognize that he was being foolish. He had a foolish perspective on, on the world and the culture around him. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. See, trusting his physical eyes, Asaph had ignored what they were incapable of seeing. He he forgot that God is in control of everything. That God is indeed good to the righteous. He gives good gifts to his people. And again, that's what he started his psalm out with, didn't he? God is good to the righteous. And so I think we need to come back to that. These next few verses, I think, to me, are one of the greatest doxologies in Scripture. And and, and the words that Asaph communicates are words that I want on my lips every day. Verse 25 through 28, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How many of you can say that? How many of you you really feel that? How many of you deep down inside of your heart are are still thinking like, Asaph, God is holding out on me. I, I pray that more and more these become, this psalm becomes a psalm of your heart. But he continues, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God Almighty my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I love John Piper. John Piper speaks to my heart in many of his books and some of his devotions, and he has two phrases that I repeat often to myself. The first is, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Are you most satisfied in him? Or do you think that your satisfaction comes in wealth, fortune, fame, popularity? Are you most satisfied in Him? Second quote that I love is Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. There was a reason that the rich man sold everything he had and bought the field with the treasure in it. Because nothing else compared. Nothing else compared to the Savior and that treasure that he found. He goes on, and people who would, ha- who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. If you're going to be happy in heaven without Christ, that's not where you're going to be. That the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, here, listen to this, this is painful. We have not been converted by the gospel. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Ouch. Ouch. What are your eyes beholding? What are the treasures that you're running after? What are the treasures that you keep in front of you on a regular basis? The the only treasure that's worth it is seeking and savoring God. The only treasure that, that makes even any of the treasures that we deal with this side of heaven worth it are seeking and savoring God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that faith chapter, reminds us that spiritual reality is not some alternate dimension that we won't have access to until we die. Speaking of Abraham and those who came before him, the author of Hebrews writes, "...these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar." having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And that phrase right there is what I struggle with. I don't want to be a stranger and an exile on this earth. I want to make this earth my home. I want all this earth's treasures. I want my little kingdom. And God constantly thwarts my desire to create it. My cars break down. My houses need my house needs fixed all the time. My toilet clogs up. My disposal backs up. That's not my treasure. God is a divine thwarter, isn't he? When he thinks we're treasuring anything else but him. He is going to do what it takes to keep us from it, and that scares me because I I, I don't know the depth of my own depravity. I don't think any of us do. A.W. Tozer writes, We apprehend the physical world by exercise of, of faculties given to us for that purpose, eyes, ears, taste, touch. He says, We've been given spiritual faculties by means of which we can know God in the spiritual world if we will obey the Spirit's urge and begin to use them. How many of you have heard or practiced the spiritual disciplines? Is there anybody here that has, has practiced? Let me name a few. Prayer. I hope some of you raise your hands. Uh, how about meditation? Oh, no, that's too, that's too mystical for me. And, and that's the shame. Meditation has gotten a bad rap because of Eastern mysticism and Eastern meditation. And and what's the goal of Eastern meditation? To empty yourself. The goal is to hear that one hand clapping. And first of all, I don't know what one hand clapping sounds like, so how would I know that I achieved it? The goal of Christian meditation is to empty yourself of distractions so you can fill yourself with God. How many of you meditate on the Word for that purpose. Study is another discipline. The problem is, is we become so desensitized to some of these spiritual disciplines, we've handed that responsibility over to the professionals and we have forgotten how to feed ourselves. We have forgotten how to go to the scriptures and be nourished. Fasting. How many of you have ever practiced fasting? I hate it. But I love it at the same time. You know why? Because I very quickly realize how much I depend upon spiritual, physical nourishment to get through the day. And that's what fasting allows me to do. And it doesn't have to be food that you fast from. Maybe you can do an electronics fast where you turn your phone off for a week. Can you, can, what happened 100, what happened 10, 12 years ago when we didn't have cell phones? I, I would challenge you to do, a, do a, a technology fast. Try it. Maybe turn your televisions off at night and play games with your family, or read books together. See how it changes your life and your perspective. See how very quickly, when you don't have the things of the world dangling and twinkling in front of you, that you realize how much you don't need them. Spiritual disciplines are those spiritual faculties sometimes that get us off of ourselves and help us to focus on God. So I would encourage you to find out, get a book on the spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster has a great book on the spiritual disciplines. Don't get the one that he wrote 25, 30 years ago. Get the one he wrote as the 20th anniversary one because there was a great shift in Richard Foster's life. In the first book, the disciplines were the end in the second book, the disciplines, he realized the di- disciplines were a means to an end. And that's what the disciplines are. That's what reading Scripture is. Reading Scripture, some, would, some might say, and I probably could argue with them, and I'm not going to go further down this road, that Scripture is an end in itself, but it's also a means. It's a means to filling yourself more and more with who God is. Worship is a means of grace. Worship is a means especially if you're focused on what you need to be focused on in worship. It does move us to seek and savor God more and more. Well, let me go on to some practical things for us to consider. So how do we, like of keep our spiritual senses in good working order? Well, here, here's the first thing I'd like to, to suggest. And this is, you can write these down in, the, in that space in the bottom of your map. First, Ask for spiritual eyes to see that your only hope is in Christ. There's a great hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less. Pray that God would show you that Jesus is your own hope. I want to understand who God is to the extent that he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And you see, Jesus is not a mystery to us. God is still a mystery to me. The Holy Spirit's a mystery to me, even though the Holy Spirit lives and resides in me. Jesus, I can partially understand because he lived and walked in my skin. In skin. And so we can turn to the Gospels and we can hear the things that Jesus had to say to us and we can see the way that Jesus lived his life. The problem is, they're not easy. Who of us really wants to love Jesus to the degree that it's as if we hate mother, father, brother, sister? Do you love Jesus more than your family? Because that's what he calls us to do. He doesn't really call us to hate our loved ones, but he calls us to love him to such a degree that it's as if we do. How How many of you in your fight to flee from sin spiritually have cut your hand off or plucked your eye out Jesus is calling us to radical trust. But we've got to take him at his word. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians, and I pray this prayer every day for the campus in Freeport. And I believe the other pastoral staff pray for you and all the other campuses. Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you, toward us who believe? And see, in a nutshell, what Paul is praying is that you would see that God is eternally for you and not against you. He spared no expense. In fact, he sent his son to die for you to demonstrate how much he loved you and and wanted you and desired you. Second, Recognize that this battle you're in is a fight of faith. It's a fight. Scriptures tell us that we have the armor of God, right? Armor is to defend yourself against the weapons of the evil one. Some of those weapons are internal. Desire is not not outside of us. Desire is in us. And that's why James says, don't ever say the devil made me do it. We have to look at the desires of our own hearts because that's really where sin begins. But having said that, God didn't give us an armor of cotton balls. We're in a real spiritual battle and it's gonna, you're going to need to fight and you can't fight alone. We need each other. In fact, I, I want us all to see the church as that, that earthly fight club that God has given us for each other. Get get involved with two or three guys. Get involved with two or three women and call them your fight club to help you fight for the image of God in you. We need to fight that fight of faith. Fight that fight of faith and cry out like blind Bartimaeus did when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He replied, I want to see. Say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief third and finally we need to help each other see the conclusion of the psalmist at the very end of the of the of the chapter he says but for me it is good to be near god i have made the lord god my refuge that i may tell of your works see christians who see are christians who can teach others how to appreciate god that's discipleship that, that's, that's reaching out to a brother or sister next to you and wrapping your arms around them and saying, listen, your eyes are in the wrong place, friend. You, you need to be looking to Jesus. You can't look at the circumstance in your life. You can't look at the lack in your life. You can't look at the things you don't have. You've got to see Jesus for who he is. That's the essence of discipleship. And all of us have a responsibility to do that. Every single one of us. You don't have to have elder in front of your name. You don't have to have deacon in front of your name. You don't have to have pastor in front of your name. If you are a Christian, you are called to make disciples. And that means walking arm in arm. And here's the essence of discipleship. Let me reduce it down to you. You're just a beggar. I'm just a beggar trying to tell other beggars where to find food and how to find it. That's what we're here to do. We have found the treasure in the field. Let's go help others find that treasure in the field. That's it. That's witnessing and discipleship wrapped up in just a short little phrase. One last little story before I close. When Jesus had breakfast with the disciples on the beach after he rose, one of the first things he did was restore Peter, didn't he? And then after he restored Peter by asking him three times, do you love me? He then put his arm around Peter as if to say Peter now I need to let you know uh, as you get older there's going to be people uh, that are going to come alongside you and they're going to they're going to gird up your loins and they're going to take you a place that you don't want to go and scripture gives us a clue as to what Jesus was saying it says it in black and white Jesus said this to tell him what kind of death he would die but what was Peter's reaction? what about John? (laughs) wait a minute Lord uh, what about him? And don't we get caught up in the comparison issues? Don't we get caught up in that comparison struggle? And that's really the essence of envy. But what was Jesus' answer to him? He said, First of all, don't worry about John. If I want John to stay here until I come back again, what's it to you? I've got something else for you. But what you need more than anything, you don't need John. You don't need what I've called John to do. You need me. That's the answer to envy, friends. We need more of Jesus. We need more of Jesus. We need to talk about more of Jesus with each other. If you're not talking about Jesus, you're not having fellowship with other people, you're just having coffee. Talk about Jesus when you have coffee together, talk about Jesus when you're at work, talk about Jesus in your neighborhoods. That's what the world needs. That's what you and I need. We need more of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.